The scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. And now, Lord Jesus, we ask that you, the living word, would give us ears to hear. Let us hear your voice speaking to us. Let us hear the soft sound of your feet moving amongst us, Lord. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you change us and make us more like yourself. All for your glory, we pray. Amen. We are continuing in our King's Cross series, and the passage that Peggy just read is one that makes most of us squirm in our seats a bit. And if it doesn't, there's a good chance you don't fully understand what's being said. Because in this passage, Jesus upends our notions of spirituality, goodness, and what it means to call yourself a Christ follower. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover this morning. And we'll begin with the starting common assumption that most people have. We read, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. So imagine this. Jesus has just finished talking about how it's critical to be like a little child, a person of full faith and dependence in someone else to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so now he's about to start on his way to Jerusalem and coming in front of him, interrupting him, blocking his path. A young man falls on his knees and says, good teacher. This young man is eager. 
He's showing enthusiasm and respect in how he approaches Jesus. And it's later on in the passage we find out that this young man is actually quite wealthy. So after he praises Jesus, he asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the common assumption that most people have. The young man is not trying to trap Jesus. He's being sincere. And the question is based on the assumption that we must do something to earn our salvation, to get eternal life. It's like how most people assume that the way salvation works is it's like taking an exam, taking a test. And if you make a good enough grade score on the test, you pass and you earn or you inherit eternal life. And a lot of people just hope that God grades on a curve, because while I may not have aced the test, at least compared to the schlumps around me, I did pretty well, right? That's how most people assume this whole thing's work. We do certain things to earn salvation. One author writes it this way, by instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation, and every day I must pray anew for the ability to hear its message. Jesus' kingdom calls us to another way, one that depends not on our performance, but his own. We do not have to achieve, but merely follow. And what we see in our passage that after this brief back and forth, where Jesus, it's a fascinating thing that occurs. Jesus gives him most of the second part of the Decalogue, the second part of the Ten Commandments, that deal with how we relate to other people. He leaves out coveting, and he inserts a different one, don't defraud somebody. So he kind of mixes it all up there in different ways, I think, to kind of throw the young man off. And the young man answers this way upon hearing these things. Well, Jesus... I've kept all of these things since I was a little boy. I think he's being sincere. I think this is a man who honors the law, who wants to honor God, and yet, even though he's kept these things to the best of his ability since he was a young boy, he feels something's still missing. So Jesus, I know you have the answer. What do I lack? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life. And we would think that Jesus would be quite impressed with this young man. You know, if he walked into Stonebridge today, we'd be impressed with him. He'd be a man of character, integrity, probably winsomeness, authority. He's wealthy. And I guarantee you the disciples are thinking, let's add him to our traveling group, Jesus. He could really help our cause. He might give a big donation. So Jesus, you would think, maybe he would make it easy on this very respectable young man. But what he does instead, Jesus puts up a brick wall and allows the man to slam right into it. You see, as we look at the call of Jesus in verses 21 and 22, we read, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
And as the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now notice the very first thing this says is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And the word for looked at there is an intensified compound of the word. And what it means, it doesn't mean that Jesus just kind of looked at him. It's that Jesus looked to the very depths of his being. It means Jesus discerned this man inside and out. He saw the contents of his soul. There was probably a bit of a long pause, a pregnant pause, as Jesus stared intently at this young man, discerning his deepest motivations and desires and everything else. And if you think about it, what if what if Kevin had the ability to look into our souls and discern everything about us? I may not show up to work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might not either. Would he walk out of here shocked? Would he, would he walk out of here despairing? You know, if, you could, if somebody could see the fullness of who we are in its totality the good, but the bad, the ugly, our fears, everything about us, what would they do? And yet when Jesus looks at the depths of this man's soul, he loved him. And it's a side note, we don't have time to get into it, but how do you think Jesus looks at you? He's not a tyrant. He's not condemning you. He looks at you and he discerns you with love. But love doesn't not tell the truth. You see, Jesus loved this young man so much that he was honest with him and said, you just lack one thing. I'm sure the man was like, this is great. I can do it. You tell me what it is. I'll do it. I'll give it. I'll, I'll go whatever. But what Jesus says that he lacked is a bombshell that goes off. It cuts away the whole basis of the man's life, status, reputation, and security. Now, we'll talk about the problem of money in a moment, but I want you to see that, and this is, I believe, the crux of this entire narrative before us today, is that when Jesus calls you to himself, he demands that we give up anything completely that stands in the way of us following him. There's nothing left out there. When Jesus says, come, follow me, his demand is that we give up anything completely that stands in the way. You see, he doesn't just want your money. He wants you, the totality of you. When I was at Georgia Tech in 1987, and it's hard to believe it's been 30 years I was part of a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's simply called Crew. And they have a very helpful way of explaining this call of Jesus in our lives with a very simple picture. They show a circle, and this circle, that light blue thing, that represents the totality of your life, the totality of my life. And there's a throne in the center. It's a chair, but it's meant to represent a throne And around the edge, those darker circles, are all the priorities, activities, and interests of our lives. It includes things like work and hobbies, relationships, school, sports, music, everything that comprises who we are and what we do. 
And the point is, whatever sits on the throne is what controls everything else in your life. And the common way that most people live is that self, that's why that little S is there, self sits on the throne. And we try to control and organize everything. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, this week I'm really tired, so I'm going to emphasize comfort and ease and just taking it easy. And this week I'm going to emphasize being productive, and this week I'm going to emphasize family. And so we sit and we try and juggle all these different things. Whatever sits on the throne is your God. And the sad fact of the matter is that, you know, so a person who's not a Christian, Christ is on the outside of their life altogether. The sad fact of the matter is that many Christians, the way it would look, is that little S still sits on the throne. Or it could, maybe you could make it into a dollar sign, money could sit on the throne. And Christ just becomes one of the dark blue circles. He's part of my life, but he's on the periphery. He's an activity that I do. He's involved and engaged with me in different ways, but I'm still really calling the shots or somebody else is calling the shots or money's calling the shots or whatever, but he's on the outside. What Jesus is saying to the young man in this passage, because when he discerns him, he sees what's sitting on that throne. It's the God of mammon, of money. And what he's saying is, put me on the throne of your life. Put me first. Right now, you have a lesser God on that throne. And I don't just want your money. I want you. I want the heart that controls your bank accounts, young man. I don't want just some of your time. I want your full focus and your attention on me. I don't want your good deeds or activity or effort or service. I want you. And I want your love completely. Put me on the throne, and I'll actually give you something far better than you can imagine. So the question for all of us is, who or what sits on the throne of our lives? It'll look different, and you know, actually, it can change moment by moment. It doesn't always have to be self. Sometimes it is finances. Sometimes it is our kids are sitting on the throne, and they're calling the shots. We usually can't see it, but others can. The question for us this morning is, what keeps you, what keeps me, from fully following and surrendering to Jesus in every way? Money, family, reputation, success, power, comfort, security, ease. It can be any number of things. Jesus must reign over every aspect of our lives. And what we see in this passage is instantly the young man gives up. Jesus discerns what his God is, and he walks away sad. There's no follow-up questions like, are you sure, Jesus? Or, Jesus, help me understand. This is a little disconcerting to me. He doesn't ask anything. He just gives up and walks away. Very sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. Giving up his riches to follow Jesus is an utter deal-breaker to him. And so this leads us to what this passage is throwing in front of us in terms of, along with the call of Jesus, is the impossible problem of money. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Now, these are words that should make every single one of us squirm. Why? Because I'm rich. And most likely, so are you. Most of us in America are very rich. Now, we don't think of it that way because we always think, if I just earn 10% more, now I'll feel rich and now I can be generous. If I just had a little bit more, well, I'm not rich compared to her. Well, I'm not rich compared to him. So I'm not rich, am I? We're all rich. We just rationalize it in so many ways because we don't want this to really bear its weight on our lives. Let me give you an illustration. There's a website. You can go to it this afternoon if you're brave. Globalrichlist.com. And you can type in your salary or your net worth. It's actually more accurate if you type in your net worth. But if you make $50,000 a year, which is actually below the University City average, you are in the top 0.31% richest people in the world by income, earning $50,000. We are rich. We are fabulously rich. And that's why Jesus' words need to weigh upon us. And we need to seriously consider this. And I know you're looking quickly to the right-hand side there, which says, okay, if I make 50000 I'm the 18,652,583rd richest person in the world. And, you, and what you want to say is, well, there's 18 million people ahead of me. I'm not rich. We're rich. Because we're in the top 0.31%. It means there's billions of people who have far less than us. At $50,000 a year, you make $26.04 an hour compared to the worldwide average of $0.23 an hour. So, this definitely has a lot to deal with us. And Jesus, we know if you look at Scripture, he doesn't have a lot of favorable things to say about money because as he talks about it, you'll often see that to him, wealth is never neutral. It can actually be toxic to our souls. What he's saying here is that wealth and possessions can be an almost insurmountable obstacle that can prevent a person from giving themselves completely to him. That's what happened with the rich young man here. He gave up. It's not worth it following you, Jesus. I can't do that. And sometimes, this is where pastors are very tempted to explain away Jesus' statements here so that we all feel a little bit better. And it happens all kinds of ways. People create loopholes, and they also just explain away the text. I mean, if you're willing, how many people, you can raise your hand, have you heard that the eye of the needle is a small gate in the city of Jerusalem? And so a camel could fit through it if you took all of its gear and pack off and you pushed it through. You heard that one? Okay, a lot of you have. There is no evidence of that whatsoever. 
That was something made up a couple of centuries ago to let people off the hook who had a lot of stuff. And if you think about it, it's completely contradictory to what Jesus is saying because he's saying it's almost it's impossible for a rich person to enter heaven. Well, if, you, if the eye of a needle is just a small gate and you can really, by working really hard, you can earn it somehow. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Jesus is taking the largest mammal in Jerusalem. And he's actually, this is a common saying among rabbis at the time. Other rabbis who lived in different parts of the world, their saying was, it's harder for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Jesus is just taking the common largest mammal in Jerusalem. It's harder for a camel to go through. He's not talking about a gate. He's talking about an impossibility by human standards. James Stewart says it this way about those of us who want to explain this thing away. He writes, People will always find ways and means of eluding a religion's stern demands while still calling themselves its followers and signing its creeds and continuing to bear its name. They will always regard the half-allegiance they are prepared to give with a wonderful complacency and satisfaction, feeling that anyone, even God himself, might be gratified by the interest they show and the patronage they offer, not realizing that attitude which seems so reasonable and respectable, is dealing religion an awful blow and doing it damage with which all the direct frontal attacks of its open enemies are a mere nothing. There's a whole lot of truth in that. You know what we typically do? We assume, okay, there's this imaginary danger line of whatever amount of money, and it's usually, like I said, about 10% more than what we make. And we assume, okay, that's the danger line. I'm below it. I don't have to worry. I'm not rich like that person's rich. We can't do that. The danger of wealth and possessions is they reinforce complete self-sufficiency and independence from God. Jesus discerned the young man. Where is your heart? Where is your ultimate trust? It's in what you have. This is one of the reasons tithing is so important. Because when we give to God as he commands and we give generously, it's a foundational reminder to us as we give it away that our life is not about money. Yeah, you need money to live. We all do. But money is not going to comfort you in a tragedy. Money is not really going to provide you what you really need in a crisis. When we give it away, we remind ourselves, this is not what my life is all about. This is not what sits on my throne. Giving it away is what gets its hooks out of us. Because money can get its hooks into us and hang on. And giving it away generously releases those hooks. It's a reminder of where our ultimate trust lies. You know, yeah, and I've heard this so many times. Well, one day, 
I'll give. But right now I'm saving. Because Dave Ramsey said I need to save a thousand bucks. So one day, after I get that thousand bucks saved, then I'll start giving generously. Or one day, once my 401k reaches a hundred thousand dollars. Well, no, actually, I meant two hundred thousand dollars. Three hundred thousand dollars. Then I'll start giving. It's got its hooks in you already. I don't want to, this is not meant to be a guilt trip, but it is meant to help us discern our soul. If we don't give generously, it's a good sign money has its hooks in us in some way. If, if a spouse, if you're married, comes to you and says, hey, you know, I think we, and you're like, eh, eh, I don't think so. Something's got its hooks in you. And something may be sitting on the throne of your life that shouldn't be there. Jesus discerned the young man had money on the throne. Our financial concerns and preoccupations can literally deafen us to hearing Christ's call, come, follow me. And the disciples, when Jesus says this, that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom, they're stunned because they assume Well, being rich is a sign of blessing from God. Obviously, if you're rich, God loves you and has blessed you. It shows he's favorable to you. And you're saying that it's hard for that person? Who then can be saved? Jesus, this makes no sense to us. In verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is a a widely quoted verse. Widely quoted out of context. You know how most people quote it, is it's quoted, with God all things are possible, meaning that, okay, you weren't so responsible, God will take care of it, don't worry about it. You didn't study for that test, with God all things are possible, you can still ace it. You didn't do the hard work of that presentation you have to make before the managers Monday morning, don't worry, with God all things are possible. We use it as an escape clause for lack of preparation in our lives. That's not the point. What Jesus says is that what's impossible with man to be saved is completely possible with God. Jesus means that God can change the hearts of people who otherwise would never follow him, who otherwise would never let something else take the throne of their lives. You see, getting right and staying right with God is an impossibility for us in and of ourselves. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. You can be as good as you want, as giving as you want, as respectable in community, as serving and giving of your time, and apart from Christ, it means nothing. The Bible actually calls it filthy rags, trying to earn your salvation that way. Because the Bible says our problem is not weak faith, Our problem is we're spiritually dead. Our problem isn't that we're just imperfect people who need a little tweak and fixing. It's that we are God's enemies who in and of ourselves will never bow the knee to him. And this is why Jesus says what's impossible with man is completely possible with God because God can change that kind of a heart. For those of you who have never trusted Jesus, you hear what he's calling you to. And, and yeah, I will say, 
This is not a universal statement. Every follower of Jesus Christ must liquidate everything they have. Obviously, he didn't even say that because you read the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is incredibly wealthy, but Jesus saw that his salvation came to Zacchaeus, who paid back four times anyone he defrauded and gave away half of what he owned to the poor. He still had so much. Jesus didn't say, go get rid of the rest of it, Zacchaeus. He saw that money wasn't Zacchaeus' God any longer. But don't let that cause you to think, okay, I'm fine, because this is probably the biggest idol in America. For those of you who have never trusted Jesus Christ, I beg you, let today be the day of salvation for you, where you say, I'll get off that throne, and I'll let Christ sit on it, and I will surrender everything completely to Him. And for those of us who are Christians, the same applies to us, because, you know, following Jesus isn't just that, okay, when I was six years old, 42 years ago, I gave my life to Christ, and we've been good ever since then. That's true. That's when I became a Christian. But following Jesus' call of come follow me is day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. It's moment by moment following him and surrendering to him. Lord, what would you have? You call the shots. I am yours, and all I have is yours. Jesus was asking nothing more of the man in the story or of us what he himself was willing to do. I told you, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Why is he going there? He's going to be hung on a cross and die for our sins. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. He left all the wealth of heaven and became poor by becoming one of us. He lived in poverty. He died a death as a criminal on a cross, all so that we could be made rich. That's our king. That's the one who calls us to himself. You know, many of us, uh, the pastors here at Stonebridge, will quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer a lot. You may not know his personal story. This is a man who was born in Germany during, you know, he was before World War II and he was a Christian during World War II. He was born into a very wealthy aristocratic family. His father was a leading doctor of the day known internationally, worldwide. Bonhoeffer himself was brilliant and his family, because they were so influential, they had They had connections and networks everywhere, in government, in news and media, in hospitals and doctors, in school and education, everywhere. The Bonhoeffers were a very highly respected family in Germany. Dietrich is brilliant, and his family has great plans for him. At age 13, he felt God was calling him to become a pastor. His father couldn't believe it. What are you thinking, son? How stupid. Don't throw your life away. You see, at a very young age, Bonhoeffer had to wrestle with, who's on the throne of my life? Am I going to listen to my father, who's telling me that I need to go study here, or am I going to listen to Christ, my Lord, who's telling me to follow him here? Bonhoeffer goes to seminary. He becomes a pastor. And after graduating seminary, he actually goes into Berlin, into a small, very poor church, and start serving as a pastor there. It's during that time, and he's in his 20s still, that Hitler rises to power. 
And the sad fact of the matter is that the German church aligned themselves with Hitler. This is all too familiar of a picture. And you can read stories about how the German national church, they just, I mean, they saw Hitler as a very good person. Bonhoeffer actually started speaking against Hitler in different ways, had all kinds of concerns. And he was one time giving a radio broadcast talking about a leader and how sometimes a leader can be a misleader. And right when he was giving that comparison, he was cut off because they were listening to him. Bonhoeffer started working against the Nazis because he saw what they were doing to Jews. And after a while, he decided, I can't just do this by moral persuasion and religious activity. I've got to do more. And he felt like God was calling him to do more. And when he started speaking up against Hitler, his friends in the German National Church disowned him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They spoke vigorously against him. This is a very big deal. And once again, at a young age, in his early 20s, Bonhoeffer had to say, who's on the throne of my life? Am I going to follow Jesus and what he's calling me to here and speaking up against something over which I have grave concern, or am I going to listen to elders in the faith who are saying I'm utterly wrong and misguided? Who was on the throne? He decided, I've got to take more action. And so he actually joined the Secret Service, even though they had suspect of him in different ways. And they put him in as an agent because he did have all kinds of connections all over the world. And he became an agent to go to the United Kingdom, to England regularly. And he was meant to spy on and get information and bring it back to the Nazis. Well, what he actually did as a double agent is he used his connections there to bring Jews out of Germany and get them to safety in England. That became exposed at one point. Bonhoeffer left Germany. He goes to America to start teaching at Union Seminary as a guest lecturer. And after three months of being there, he said, he wrote to a friend, Reinhold Niebuhr, and said, I've made a grave mistake because... Christ is telling me I need to be in Germany suffering with my people. And I have no right to be teaching about Christ if I'm not willing to suffer. So he came back, and he really wrestled with this because he was a wanted man at this time. And he knew, if I return to Germany, there's a good chance I'm going to be arrested. Who is on the throne? Am I going to follow Christ calling me back? Or am I going to let security and safety sit on the throne of my life? He could have stayed here so easily. He returns to Germany. It's not long thereafter, he is arrested. This is him in prison. Two men in a black Mercedes drove up one day, threw him in the car, took him to prison. He was in prison two years. He stayed in prison that whole time and was killed just one month before the Allies defeated Germany. A doctor who was in the concentration camp where Bonhoeffer was wrote these words. The prisoners were taken from their cells. The verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently. I was most deeply moved by the way this man prayed. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued 
in a matter of seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. You see, Bonhoeffer, his whole life story is one of over and over, moment by moment, who sits on the throne of my life. And you say, but he died. I know. You see, Christ's calling could be dangerous. We have brothers and sisters in India and around the world who lose their lives every day. A Christian's killed every five minutes for simply professing the name of Jesus. It's not safe. So why in the world would you do it? Because your life will never be the same. And what Jesus says, and we're out of time, so I'll just say, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields or for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much. What he's saying is, there is great reward in following me. Whatever you give up in following me, you'll get back a hundredfold. And he says, there will be persecution. Don't let that deter you from following my call. I'll end with reading from Pedro Arrive, who writes, Nothing is more practical than finding God, than following in love in a quite absolute final way. The person or thing you are in, you are in love with affects everything in your life. It determines what you do when you get out of bed, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you spend time with, what breaks your heart, and what brings you joy. Fall in love with Christ. Stay in love with Him. Your love for Him will decide everything. Pedro is simply saying, let Christ sit on that throne and be your all. Come, follow Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, most of us, if we're honest, we play at being true disciples most of the time. Oh, Lord, help us to face up to what following you really means for us and help us to put first things first. We know that money is a blinding, demanding master. It's never satisfied. It steals our joy. Lord, free us from its hooks. Remind us that what doesn't possess us, we are free to give away for your glory. Uncurl the grip of money and its clutches on us and spring open within us a generosity that shares with those in needs and seeks the good and the glory of your kingdom. Help us to give, Lord, as you gave and help us to remember that your name is great and powerful and you are with us every step of the way. In your name we pray, amen.